Awesome. Thank you, John. Um, thank you guys for joining us uh, somehow on a holiday. Um, I understand that if you are in the U.S., maybe the kids have not started trick-or-treating yet. Um, if you are in the U.K., I'm not actually sure if there are major differences or not um, between how we uh, remember this day. But I do know no matter where you are in the world, you're going to think of it um, by a few different names. Um, obviously, there's the all too famous and infamous Halloween um, which comes from a much better term, um, Hallow's Eve, the day that we want to celebrate those who are hallowed, who are sanctified, who are made holy, and therefore considered by many denominations and sects of the church to be saints. It's also Reformation Day uh, for Protestants out there who really love to tote their Protestant uh, pride. They remember um, the day that Martin Luther um supposedly took a stand against his brethren in the Catholic Church, not in order to destroy or split, but to um, make some, what he saw as necessary changes to corruptions. Um, I'm actually going to pause here. I I can't wait to learn. Anne and Andy is telling me in the UK there is trick-and-treating, but the weather, oh no, the weather is foul today. I bet that's the whole season starting like last week, right? Um, so if many people are not out right now. I'm glad that you guys are joining us here. Um, but yeah, the last big category people will think of this day under is Reformation Day. And it doesn't personally matter to me very much, nor does it matter to many people I know, how you view the day, um, what it's supposed to be, what it's not supposed to be, but how you use it is a different matter entirely, right? <clears throat> Some people do consider um this an excuse to be frivolous with horror and uh, fear. Uh, they intentionally prank other people. They scare other people. Um, kids might leverage their um, opportunity to, to get candy that's normally forbidden from them. They uh, learn really quickly how to cheat and steal uh, trading candies that they do like for, uh, or they don't like for ones that they do want. And, um, Unfortunately, other people do take it as an opportunity for some pretty grievous actions because it's harder to know what is unseemly and what's just looking unseemly on Halloween, at least in America. And I think that we can use that as a jumping off point together for considering the life of the supposed saint. Um, you may be familiar with uh, the language from the New Testament. That even the worst church, the most criticized church, the one with the most problems that we know about, sorry, my mic is going haywire, uh, that is the church in Corinth is still called um, a letter to the saints who are at Corinth. Paul does not try and vindictively remove that title from the living people he's there with. Um, but as many of you know, over time, the idea of sainthood was not just a synonym for member of the worldwide church. It actually did change a little bit and took on some, some honorifics that suddenly, and this is one of the more charitable readings, um, a saint is not categorically better or different than you and I in our current living age, but uh, they're the people in history that we can say with most confidence were not wolves in sheep's clothing. They're probably the people that we can most confidently say if someone is at the right hand um, of, of Abraham, which we're going to talk about tonight, it's probably these people. 
And we want to be there with them. We hope we will. We may have very strong faith that we will end up next to them as well. But, you know, our lives are still young. Things might change. And so over time, and especially the Western church, canonizing saints became a really particular, almost political process. It still is to some extent. And it's made it hard for us to talk about sainthood um, in a very ecumenical way, which is the way we find it used almost exclusively throughout the New Testament. I say all that because my favorite term for today is All Saints Day. It was actually introduced to me at uh, Christ Church as um, this opportunity for us to look in the pattern left behind for us by those who've gone before in faith. Uh, the book of Hebrews, I'm sure you're familiar, is um, all too ready to tell us story after story after story of these heroes from the Old Testament and what some people have, I guess, in a pun called the Hall of Faith or the Faith Hall of Fame. And first and foremost of those people is Abraham. What on earth is it about Abraham that makes him um, such an easy go-to example? It's not just that we have so much of Genesis telling his story. Actually, we see much more of Joseph. People who study Christology and typology will find that Joseph in Egypt is closer as a type of Christ, even than Abraham and other more beloved heroes uh, that get so much of our attention. But Abraham does stand alone for a really special reason. And I'm going to pause it to you one. And later on, I want to hear a few others because I know that there's more than one. But one that hit me like a ton of bricks last week is that Abraham might be the only mortal person that's not part of the Godhead, that is not part of the Trinity. He might be the only mortal person that you and I necessarily have a direct relationship with when it comes to our eternal state. And this is not at all an attempt to deify him. It's not at all an attempt to make him more than human. It's weird that he's still human, and yet we seem to be his children, even if not descendants of him by blood. Paul in Galatians um, talks quite a bit about this. And, and you know, it's a it's a heavy rhetorical message he has. Some people bludgeon others a little too hard with it. But I do think he is trying to make an important point that Abraham, being the man of faith, becomes a father and forerunner to pretty much every other person who demonstrates faith in his God, in the God of Abraham. Uh, he's the first name we have in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we connect to God as we understand him as Christians— when Jews uh, connect to God as they can understand him through the tradition handed down to them, and even our friends in other religions that maybe we don't want to consider brethren, they still attempt to connect to God of the universe as the God of Abraham. And so he acts as this kind of funnel that we're all tethering ourselves at least partially to before we, um, before we ourselves come to know God very particularly. He's also not entirely dead. If you uh, may remember in the New Testament, there's a conversation Jesus has. It's actually recorded 
not in such a chronological way between the gospels, but it's recorded as though it happened maybe more than once between Jesus and a certain sect among the Pharisees and among the Judeans of his day who claimed to be children of Abraham and yet rejected what Jesus was doing in his ministry and his proclamation of the gospel. And they have a really heated debate. John chapter eight captures this really, I think, with the most um, stark colors in their speech. But what's interesting to me is both there and we also have in um, in Matthew 22, this profound statement that I think is centering what I'm hoping to get at tonight. I like, uh, as Matthew has it in Matthew 22, 32, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He seems to imagine Abraham, though he doesn't give us, you know, a clear cut. This is what it is. This is what the afterlife is. He seems to see Abraham as more alive than dead, even in his current state. In fact, he uses Abraham in a parable. You're probably familiar with the rich man and Lazarus. Um, this story of two people who died had completely different lives on earth. Um, one that was full of every comfort and blessing and uh, anything money can buy. And then another who died in abject poverty and suffering. And uh, the rich man finds himself not speaking to Lazarus, but speaking to Abraham in this parable. And the conversation that he seems to have with Abraham acknowledges a relationship that he thought he had. Father Abraham, you're supposed to be some kind of progenitor, some kind of um, protective ancestor. You are my link to life after death. What are you doing all the way over there? And Abraham in the parable says, I'm sorry, but there's a chasm fixed between us that neither you can cross to me nor I could cross to you. And through the rest of this parable, though I don't want to take every line hyper literally and try and create any kind of systematic description of the afterlife, Jesus is willing to interact with the person of Abraham as though we have some kind of relationship with him that has been taken together in the term Abraham's bosom or in his side or his chest. That for a while, one of the best ways to describe peace after you've died is to be resting with your fathers, your ancestors, ultimately at Abraham's side. So what on earth, as we go back to it, like what was so cool? Did he just do something way better than any other hero in the Bible? Was there some, was it like first come first serve because he lived so long ago, he's suddenly that much more special? I don't think that's it. And I, I want us to take a little detour tonight uh, as we go through um, a quick synopsis of Lech Lecha, which is our uh, the, the Parsha that this Haftarah is paired with. And let's just review some of the really big points. Um, what on earth was going on in Abraham's life? So I'm going to share my screen real quick. And let's see here. If you all bear with me just a moment. As I figure out how to do that. Genesis 11. If y'all just give me a little thumbs up, can you see the words on the screen? Awesome. Uh, I'm not going to hold everyone tonight super long by reading through all of it. I just want us to, to have a, a quick summary. From Shem to Abram, 
this is an account of Shem's family line. And you might remember Shem is the um is one of the the few good forefathers we get with a, a good line of um children and grandchildren and great grandchildren to come through. He seems to connect Abram well to Noah in a good way so that the modern or contemporary descendants of the author of Genesis and Moses and the Israelites would remember that, okay, we're, we're, we're from one of the better stocks. At least, you know, we, we didn't have the, the curse of ham um, upon our particular people here. And so you go through this long genealogy and then it just pit stops on Abram's family and talks about the, the line of Terah. This is father. We get this quick description of Abram and Naor, um, his brother, who had both married, and then um, Abram's wife, Sarah. And they decide with Terah to get up out of where they're living. It says, look here, Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, the wife of his son, Abram. And together, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there instead. This is what sets such a powerful moment up for the beginning of Genesis 12, which is like where the story really starts. Um, I hope I can go to the next. I've seemed to have lost like the next chapter button. There we go. And this is where we get Lech Lecha. It means get up you and go. Go from your country. This is the command that God issues to him from your people and your father's household to the land. I will show you God blesses. He promises a blessing. And then he directs Abram through the course of his life. And Abram is not perfect. You might remember that his uh, detour in Egypt uh, establishes even a family pattern that his son, Isaac will later mimic later in his life um, of putting his needs before his wife's of threatening the the life and well-being of Sarah so that he won't be killed because he's afraid of how um these kings will will react to him how pharaoh specifically will and this sets up a rocky relationship between Abraham's family and uh, the Egyptians that would later enslave them not to say that there's a direct link we're told that a new Pharaoh arose and didn't know Joseph, but it seems to foreshadow for us. Oh, there are problems for us in Egypt when we read the, the Tanakh uh, with that lens. So he's not a perfect person. He's not ideal, but he does this incredible thing. This is actually one of the most potent moments in the entire Bible for me. It's when Lot's shepherds and Abram's shepherds are arguing with each other. There's actually a place you can go in uh, in Israel today. It's called the the point of the angel, and it's supposed to be roughly where Abram is standing with the angel overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's also roughly the same place where Lot is able to look out east in the um, the Judean Valley, later to be known Judean Valley, see that it's full of fresh green fruit and vegetables, and he says, "I want to go there." And Abram says, "Okay." You go there, you take the good land, I'll go the other way. It's that act of deference that he did not have to give to Lot that immediately tells us we're dealing with an abnormal kind of leader. He doesn't just take all for himself. And so 
giving up part of the the land that was promised to him just a chapter ago by God. All of this is going to be yours, every inch of it. And he's like, yeah, you can have some of it. And in fact, take the better, take the better part if you want. It seems that Abram is working according to a goal. I think a little bit, uh, a little bit clearer for him than for us. It starts to unfold over time, and that's where Genesis 14 um, puts Lot in. Sorry for the pun. A whole lot of trouble. He is um, captured when a number of kings go to war against each other, and. Abram is not just a negotiator. He's not just a nomad. He's not just, you know, a rich head of a family. He is a warlord. And I say this to some of my friends and family every once in a while when I get frustrated about uh, modern times and modern rules, like, you know, you can't go across a a fence. You have to get a permission slip to, um, you know, a visa to enter another country just to see the sites or visit family. And like in the days of Abram, you just go somewhere. And if someone tries to stop you, you show some force and they either let you go or someone dies. That's it's pretty much the wild West for Abram and his people. And he shows that through this story. He's not just like needlessly violent, but he is strong and he is not afraid to be strong in the face of opposition. And then, gosh, what can we do with this? Melchizedek, king of Salem. Everyone has thoughts on Melchizedek. Maybe maybe someone will dare to share them later on. But just remember, if, if there's one person being blessed by this figure, it's Abram. And if the giving of a tenth of everything he owned created the tithe that pretty much everyone knows about, like this is the tradition it came from, we know that we're dealing with somebody who is... Uh, his shoes are too big for anyone else to fill. He's setting patterns. He's setting um, the the record for other people eventually to follow, even in these seemingly miscellaneous ways. As we go through a renewing or a, a second sharing of the idea of a covenant and then the actual making of a covenant and the sign of the covenant between God and Abram, we suddenly see, wow, this guy is not just, you know, loved by God, but he is in a unique standing with God. God himself is going to make a very explicit deal with him on how his descendants and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through his life. Of course, you know the story of Hagar and Ishmael. We'll go through this. Um, of course, two great peoples uh, come from this, and God through Abraham, shows mercy on Ishmael and Hagar, which allows the rising of the Ishmaelites. Um, that There was a long swath of history where they called themselves Hagarists. They believed themselves, you know, like the Greeks called themselves Hellenes. Descendants or people gathered around the idea of Helen of Troy. These people in Southern Arabia considered themselves necessarily identi- identified by Hagar, their great-great-great-great-great-grandmother matriarch. And these two people would stay in strife for longer than longer than any of us have time to to review. But as we as we get to the end of the section for for today's parsha, we're left wondering: okay, what from all of this can the prophets talk about? Do we just look for Abraham's name somewhere and then that's it? We just slap that down and say that that's what we got to read? Maybe. 
I think that there's something a little bit uh, more to it. And that's where we're now going to, let me unshare my screen. Is it still sharing? Oh, sorry. I know everyone's muted. <laughs> I shouldn't be asking active questions it's like that. It's still sharing. Oh, great. So you can see my notes. Uh, cool. Let's go to our reading then today. Okay. And this is where I'm actually going to spend time in the words so that we can take them together. This is from Isaiah. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and not and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I'm he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. My righteous right hand. It's the strong one. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make of you a, a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. 
You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. This is an emotive verse, to say the least. There's a lot going on here. It begins in a state of trouble. At least this selection was chosen for that. It begins in a state of where are we going to go from here? Where is God? It it feels so much like many of the Psalms that we uh, we run to in our own uh, despair and our own questioning. And it takes a while to to get to a you know a solid good note, but it really takes its time. These words take their time moving not only through you know from thought to thought but like describing terrain going out to the coastlands and back through the the lands um that were under attack in Isaiah's day it has this kind of cryptic cryptic description of you know someone from the east being raised up and i'm going to i'm going to venture very briefly into something here sometimes we misunderstand something in scripture. We misunderstand a reference. We we think that we've connected the dots and maybe they're not the right dots. And we need to be very careful not to de- declare author's intent must be this. And therefore, you know, we should a- apply it this way. But sometimes those misapplied thoughts, those wrongly connected dots still lead to some other insight that on its own, if you discovered it some other way, still just as valid. And I'm going to admit admit to everyone in a moment of just like sheepishness, I suppose. I'm not certain who exactly is described here. It seems to be one of the kings that Israel is, is under attack from. But the first time I read it, it also weirdly seemed to describe Abraham, the, the warlord Abraham, not, not too badly. It, it evoked for me memories of Abraham's fighting the kings um, uh, to rescue uh, to rescue Lot. I'll just look at it again. I'm not trying to convince anyone that this is about him. I'm not really sure it is, but to see how one scripture reminds you of another or just brings you to then think about another, I think is still worthwhile. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him. This has got to be about a. It's got to be about the Assyrians. Um, so he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, am He. Time and time again in the prophets, we hear of God raising up Israel's enemies by his own will, um, to punish uh, the people for their infidelity, uh, their lack of faithfulness to him. And yet, I don't know, this this passage, when I was looking through it and trying to find what other people had to say, couldn't fully convince me that this is only talking about um, a rival king or an evil conqueror that we're supposed to to be afraid of and see as ultimately our enemy. But I welcome other people's thoughts on this. I'm not here to tell you what's what entirely. Um, 
We do, though, get to the explicit mention of Abraham here, wonderfully referred to by God himself as my friend. There's also another title that Abraham seems to have. Uh, Moses gets pretty close. You know, God, the one who spoke with God face to face as a friend speaks with a friend. And yet Abraham, my friend, is actually a, a special title reserved for, for this patriarch and exemplar for our faith. So we're kind of twisting downward towards uh, the end of what I have to say here. I want us to return to just the question of what's cool about Abraham. Lots of things, sure, but there's one outside of the Christian tradition that shocked me the first time I heard it. I'd like to pause it for y'all just to think just like the thought experiment, how Abraham is treated in Jewish tradition. Can you guys by show of thumbs, just tell me if you see the burning palace on your screens. Awesome. I'm going to read a few excerpts of this for y'all and um, leave us to, to discuss back and forth what we make of um of this as it informs our understanding of Abraham and why he's uh, in the position he is. So this is from Bereshit Rabbah 39.1, and it's retelling this story from Genesis 12. It says, Adonai said to Abram, go you forth from your land. Rabbi Yitzhak said, this may be compared to a man who was traveling from place to place when he saw a castle. And yeah, all those words have to be there a flame, or maybe just a glow, maybe burning, or maybe like full of radiant light. Not really sure what was meant here. People debate later. He said, is it possible that this castle lacks a person to look after it? The owner of the building looked out and said, I am the owner of the castle. Similarly, because Abram, our father said, is it possible that this castle has no master and no one to look after it? The Holy One, blessed be he, looked out and said to him, I am the master of the universe. Hence, therefore, God said to Avraham, Lech lecha. What on earth does this have to do with anything? It's not grounded in, in any single word of scripture except the term Lech lecha. There is no mention of castles in Abraham's day. There's no, I mean, we get some second temple literature in the Testament of Abraham, where he's actually like thrown into a furnace, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and he miraculously survives. And so maybe some people, you know, posit that we're kind of crossing our wires with other stories, but it's certainly not grounded in Tanakh. And yet it's saying something about Tanakh. And it's saying something really, really interesting. Um, let's let's keep reading down. Rashi has this to say. Therefore, Abraham, our father, asked, is it possible that this castle lacks a person to look after it? Now, the light that Abraham saw was the light of illumination, Doleket. He saw the sun itself, which illuminated the day, the moon and stars that illuminated the night. And he said, is it possible that this wondrous palace lacks an owner? It's like, you know, he's like the first theist. He kind of discovers that the world is beautiful and maybe it had a, an artist designing it, Right. And at that moment, God appeared to him and said, I am the master of this house. I'm the painter you're looking for, right? It's it's this very lovey-dovey 
um, interaction of Abraham is just like the first guy to appreciate God's, you know, painting because no one else has apparently noticed it before. And God's like, just for that, you get to partner with me in painting a lot more. But then there's another way of reading this. David uh, Luria, I'm, I'm not actually sure who he says but or who he is, but um, this is part of another collection. When Abraham saw the wicked were setting the world on fire, he began to doubt in his heart. Perhaps there is no one who looks after this world. Immediately, God appeared to him and said, I am the owner of the world. Abram's question does not arise from contemplation or wonder. It is more like an exclamation of horror. Isn't that fitting for Halloween? Is this really what the world is like? As soon as he asks that question, God appears to him and says, perhaps reassuringly, perhaps just matter-of-factly, I'm the owner of the world. You, know, you walk by a burning house or a burning car and you're like, oh my gosh, where are the firemen? Who's going to put it out? And this dude is just like standing up there. He's like, I own this house. Or standing next to it, I am the owner of the car. That feels so abnormal, so out of left field. And yet, I think it's just as viable, if not the better alternative of how to understand what this story was getting at. There's just a couple more I'd like us to, to look through. Rabbi Abraham, aptly named Joshua Heschel, uh, for God in Search of Man, a pretty controversial book that uh, I'm not asking anyone to be fans of, but an important one nonetheless says so that there are those who sense the ultimate question in moments of wonder in moments of joy. There are those who sense the ultimate question in moments of horror in moments of despair. It is both the grandeur and the misery of living that makes man sensitive to the ultimate question. The world is in flames consumed by evil. Is it possible that there's no one who cares? And then one of the most influential Jewish voices uh, of the past generation Still, um, and people, many people alive today are probably familiar with him. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said that what haunts us about the Midrash is not just Abraham's question, but God's reply. He gives an answer that is no answer. I think that's the typo there. An answer that is no answer. He says, in effect, I'm here without explaining the flames. He does not attempt to put out the fire. It is as if instead he were calling for help. God made the building, man set the fire, and only man, okay, I'm not going to add my commentary. This is what he's saying. Only man can put out the flames. Abraham asks God, where are you? God asks man, why did you abandon me? So begins a dialogue between earth and heaven that has no counterpart in any other faith, and which has not ceased for 4,000 years. In these questions, which only the other can answer, God and man find one another. Perhaps only together they can extinguish the flames. This is actually the first passage I ever got to read in practicing Havruta with um, a an Orthodox rabbi who's a good friend to Christians and a deep fan of Christians who uh, want to make an, a positive impact on Jewish-Christian relations. Uh, his name was Ari Lamb. Very cool, down-to-earth guy. And he took me through these passages step-by-step, question-by-question, saying, what do you think? Oh, that's cool. Let's look at this. What do you think? And we arrived at this kind of, I mean, it's not like the final answer, but we arrived at this last quoted part that is, wow, maybe God is calling us into a joint effort. And maybe a big part of what 
is special about Abraham is Lech Laha really was in responding to that first call, Abraham was signing up for this redemptive motion that God puts into salvation history. Ultimately, um, I believe, ultimately finalized in the work of his own son, Jesus, but started in a new kind of way by Abraham's yes. If we go back then to our actual Haftarah, I don't mean to tear, tear us away from it for too long or too many different directions. If we go back to our Haftarah now, I want us to remember it opened in a very bad place, presuming that there is a lack of attention on God's part for caring for for us. It really does seem to work alongside the feeling of the world is in flames and do you even care? And I think for many of us right now, that sentiment is more valid more now than ever. When we asked God, the world is in flames and do you even care? And this entire passage is God's reassurance. This entire passage is not saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay because I I chose the right guy. Abraham was like the best choice. It's I am still in control of this. And yet I am partnering with you. I am choosing to work through you in helping to bring these nations back, starting with the one that was committed to me in covenant. And this is that big, this 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 volta, this turning point in verse 8 of chapter 41. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I really do believe that the story of Abraham from beginning to end and the reverberations that he leaves on the rest of salvific history, the rest of biblical history, all the way to Jesus um, speaking about him in his own ministry, calling people to act like his children, act like sons of Abraham, will you? And then even to the author of Hebrews, who lifts Abraham up as this shining example of, if you want to work with God, if you want to be faithful, not just believing that he did stuff for you, but be faithful to God himself, follow after, after the pattern of this guy in how he brought restoration, reconciliation, healing, judgment, and ultimately reconnected um, God and man. Not by his own power, not as though no one else ever could. He just happens to be the one that God spoke to and called out, and he was faithful with that. And insofar as Abraham stands like that, I think he does stand pretty much at the front of the line of what we understand saints to be. And that's why people pattern their idea of sainthood after these heroes of faith, beginning with Abraham. And so on All Saints Day, I, I hope that we'll take a little bit of time tonight to 
just remember that there are a lot of people God is working through right now, even though we don't see it, even though we don't know it. Some of them we might think are our enemies because we've drawn whatever political lines we wanted or whatever um, culture war lines we've we've set in the sand for ourselves. Maybe some of these people we would reject first and foremost, but at the end of days, God himself will tell who are his saints and who are not. And so as we remember those who we're pretty sure made it um, and those that we really dearly hope are our slightly older brothers and sisters walking that path in front of us, um, I'd like us to remember that you know, we're not fixing our hope ultimately in any one of their examples, any one of them being some paragon. Our God is the first and foremost um, example that we look to. And uh, he is not just like any other God. He's not just strong. He's kind. He's not just temporally here when our nation is strong and winning. He is there when we're losing and suffering and on the brink of, of destruction. Our God, like it or not, is the everlasting God who brings strength back to his people. You might have noticed a few verses, uh, if you're familiar, if you're, you're a fan at all of, of CCM, um, that Lincoln Brewster wrote a song many years ago. It's like my earliest childhood um, called Everlasting God. Chris Tomlin eventually wrote a version of it. I actually even wrote one that I wanted to play for you guys on my guitar, but my mic doesn't like my guitar. So at the risk of sounding really cheesy, could I ask before we open the discussion, could all of you just join me in a few minutes um, listening to the words of this song that are taken from our text tonight? And then let that moment of meditation, you know, if I said something God forbid, if I said something dead wrong, if I said something um, that would incite uh, an argument that would be better had off of Zoom, if I have in any way spoiled the soup here, um, I hope that we can take a moment together reflecting in these words put to song and then engage uh, in what we're thinking. Sound good to you guys? Thank you all for listening to me. That will be the end of my part. And uh, I hope that this works. <laughs> 